Folks, it seems that almost every week there's something mentioned in our news media about the prospect of life in outer space. And one of the things we hear most often is that the only people who won't accept the possibility are religious people or Christians, churchgoers. And that's just not true. Christians aren't the only ones who's conflicted on this topic. The scientific community is too. Believers in the theory of evolution will point out that because of evolution, the probability of life throughout the universe is extremely high. Their line of reasoning is that if evolution could happen here, then it could happen anywhere. If life can spontaneously appear in one place in the universe, why not elsewhere? And that line of thinking seems to make some sense until you really study how evolution works. There are others within the scientific community who will tell you that our very existence through millions of years of evolution all began with a cosmic accident that by law of averages and probability should never have happened. And yet, here we are. So if the odds of it happening once are astronomical, then the odds of it happening more than once are completely absurd. So not everyone who believes in evolution accepts the notion that it can just happen anywhere at any given time. There's a lot of other factors involved. As a matter of fact, it's precisely those many factors that allow Christians with a scientific mind to point out that random chance alone couldn't have started what we call life. Something outside with superior intelligence had to be involved. Now, most conservative Christians believe that our existence isn't a cosmic accident, but it's something that was carefully planned out and then brought into being with purpose. Even our redemption through Jesus Christ was planned out long before God ever said, let there be light, in Genesis chapter 1. Most conservative Christians also take the biblical account of history very seriously. A lot of Christians are open-minded to the idea of alien life in the universe because they know if God can do it once, he can do it as many times as he wants. And we all know how big the universe is. But most conservative Christians who are more biblically literate don't accept that possibility for a couple of good reasons. One reason is that the Bible says absolutely nothing about life anywhere in the universe other than earth. Now, it does talk about life in alternate dimensions, but not from other planets. Another reason why most conservative Christians don't believe in aliens from other planets, and this is probably the main reason, it's because the Bible makes it extremely difficult for even the possibility. There's not even wiggle room. If intelligent alien life exists on other planets in the universe, then major portions of biblical scripture have to be wrong. People say that the Bible is God's message to his creation. Okay, fine. What is the summary of that message? Cliff Notes version. God was here first. His very nature of existence is one of absolute, total perfection and flawlessness. Another word for that is holy. He made everything. So if there's 30 or 40 different universes out there as big as ours, he made those too. John chapter 1 verse 3 points that out. Now, when he got around to making us, he made us with a free will, and the purpose for our existence was for relationship to himself. Now, one of his prior creations didn't like that. One of his most popular names today is the devil. He got in the way, and through deceit and deception, caused the first people to become flawed and imperfect. Another word for that is sinful. And because they were imperfect, they could not coexist and have a relationship with one who was perfect. It's like a fish trying to breathe out of water. Physically incompatible. Can't happen. God's perfect in his justice. He's perfect in his wisdom. Perfect in his power. But there's something else that he's perfect at. He's perfect at love. 
He proved it when he sent his only son to the planet Earth in the form of a human being to take our place and pay for our imperfections himself. That's what the Christian doctrine is all about, real Christian doctrine. God himself providing a debt payer to pay a debt that we owe to him. And the Bible is trying to communicate that truth to us, to accept that sacrifice, to accept that payment for our own imperfection or sin. But that just redeems our souls. That does not redeem the universe. The universe became flawed when imperfection was introduced into it. The point is, God made us for him. We became imperfect through the deception of the devil. And God himself sacrificed his son to pay for our own imperfection so that we could be made perfect and have a relationship with God. And the final proof that God's promise was real was the resurrection. That's something that no man can do. Only God can conquer death. I know I'm leaving out a lot of details, and there's a lot more technicalities involved there, but that's the gist of it. That's the summary of the whole Bible. Okay, fine, Josh. Nice little Bible study. What's that got to do with aliens? Well, it's got a lot to do with it. Think about it. If there's intelligent life out in the universe somewhere, how do they get redeemed? How do they get saved? Of course, you might say, well, Josh, we don't even know if they're sinful or not. Well, as improbable as that may be, let's go ahead and entertain that line of thinking just for a little bit so we can get it out of the way. If there's life out there somewhere, let's assume that maybe their Adam and Eve didn't screw up like our Adam and Eve did. Maybe they're still sinless and perfect. But if they're sinless, then we have a problem with Romans chapter 3 because it says over and over again that all have sinned. Now, an argument against that might be that the Bible was written for us on earth and our learning. And since it would obviously never be read by people on other planets, then nothing in our Bible applies to them. So if this verse doesn't apply to them, then it's possible, at least theoretically, that they could be sinless. But if they're sinless, then you're confronted with the question, if someone else out there got it right, why would God continue to even bother with us? Some would say because God is a God of love. He loves all of his children. Okay, fine. Then answer this. Why would the devil even bother with us? First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, The devil roams around like a lion roaring and fears hunger, seeking someone to seize upon and devour. So why doesn't he go hit that sinless planet out there? Why are we so special? We're already screwed up. If the devil left us alone today, there is enough evil left on this planet to keep things going to hell just the way they are. So you see, it doesn't make any sense for him to continue conquering something that's already his when he's got fresh, ripe, sinless planets out there just waiting to be corrupted. So if there's life in the universe anywhere besides Earth, the devil's working on them too. So if you're going to go down this theoretical road as to whether or not they're sinless, you've got to ask the question, if they are sinless, how do they achieve and maintain sinlessness since we know the devil's working on them? Now, some might suggest that maybe God won't let the devil interfere with them. Or maybe, after God saw how things turned out here, he created them to be superior enough to withstand the devil's ways. Or maybe he was just barred from interfering after being seen interfering with us. But that implies that God learns from his past mistakes. God doesn't use trial and error. Those are the characteristics of someone who is inside time and has to learn from the past to decide what to do with the future. God is outside time. He knows the end from the beginning. 
So if there's a planet out there somewhere full of people who are sinless, it's not because he supplied them with any supernatural protection because he could have given us that same protection. He could have barred the devil from interfering with our history. He could have created the Garden of Eden without that particular tree in it. He could have given Eve a heads up. Hey, I know what's fixing to happen. Whatever you do, don't listen to him. Just listen to me. That snake, that serpent, don't listen to him. Just listen to me. Now, that's a whole other debate as to why God did allow things to turn out like they did. But we do know for certain that it wasn't an accident because God himself had already planned his son's trip to the cross before he ever planted that tree in the Garden of Eden. Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's before the Garden of Eden. He couldn't have chosen us without the cross, which means he already had that planned. So you can't make the argument that other planets could be without sin because God prevented the devil from interfering. If God did it there, then he would have done it here. Especially when you consider by not doing so, it cost God his only son, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus prayed to the Father before he went to the cross in Mark chapter 14. Three separate times Jesus asked God the Father, if there be any other way to save mankind, let's take it. God heard that prayer before he planted that forbidden tree in the garden. So there's a whole lot more going on here than meets the eye. If there is life on other worlds besides our own, you can't make the conjecture that they're sinless. Because what we know about God's love and what we know about the devil's hatred for what God loves, you have no choice but to conclude that if they exist, they have fallen to sin just like we have. Now, even though we took this road down a hypothetical discussion concerning whether or not life on other planets could be sinless, I believe that the Bible's truth does not apply just to us. It is universal. I believe when it says that all have sinned, I believe it means that all have sinned, period. With sin being such a huge problem in our universe, places in existence that might be completely free from sin would be a major achievement and would most definitely be worth at least mentioning in the Scripture. As a matter of fact, there is a place like that that's mentioned in the Scripture, a place called heaven. And heaven is not another planet. It's outside the dimensionality of time and space altogether. But that's another subject altogether. Now, we have not ruled out the possibility yet of intelligent life existing on other planets. We haven't done that yet. All we've done is rule out the possibility of them being sinless. That's all. Okay, fine. If they're sinful like us, how do they get saved? Now, you could suggest that God gave them their own Bible. But what would it say? That Jesus died for their sins on another planet called Earth? The whole point for Jesus' visit was to give us physical and historical evidence of the reality of the resurrection. I mean, that's a big deal, raising from the dead. What physical and historical evidence would they have? You could suggest that he could have visited their planet too. Fine, but what would he have told them? That before he got there, he visited another planet called Earth and died for the sins of the entire universe and then rose from the dead and then came to their planet to tell them about it? I mean, they would, need, they would need more proof than that. And miracles of healing and turning water into wine and raising other people from the dead wouldn't be enough to convince them. I mean, it's one thing to raise someone else from the dead, but it's a whole different thing when you die yourself and then raise yourself up from the dead. They would have to see that for themselves or at least have historical evidence on their own planet that it happened like we have. 
Some have conjectured that just as Jesus became a man and died as a man to pay for the sins of humanity, that maybe he also became an alien and died for their sins on their planet. But I don't agree with that because what Jesus did by becoming human was irreversible. He didn't assume human form. He didn't dress up like a human. He actually became a human. Even now in heaven, he's still a man. Now, he's got a resurrected, glorified body, but it's no different than the resurrected, glorified bodies that we will receive when we die. Besides that, the scripture said he died once and for all. Romans 6, verse 10, Hebrews 7, 27, Hebrews 9, 28, Hebrews 10, 10, and 1 Peter 3, 18. All of them saying the same thing in different ways, that Jesus Christ died once and it covered the sins of everyone. And even if you want to believe that the Bible only applies to human beings and not aliens, you have to admit that these verses are talking about one who is not confined to this planet. They're talking about Jesus Christ. It says that he died once and for all. Can you imagine Jesus dying again and again and again on every planet in the universe that has life? Well, I can't because what Jesus has been up to since the resurrection has been recorded. Right now, he's seated at the right hand of God, pleading for us here on earth. Romans chapter 8. He became human and lived a human life and selected 12 disciples and preached a ministry and then died and then rose from the dead. And what he's been doing since then has also been recorded. What are those verses that get quoted at every funeral, at least at every Christian funeral? Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to be with my Father. And if I go to be with my Father, and if I go to prepare a place for you, that means I'm coming back so I can bring you home. It also says that he's seated right beside the Father, pleading for us on our behalf. He's still busy dealing with the people of earth. And there's no indication from the scriptures that Jesus at any time has ever taken a break from that position so that he can become an alien and live an alien life and then die for the aliens and then resurrect himself in an alien body. No. If you're willing to believe that, then why did he just die in Jerusalem? Why didn't he die in Africa for the Africans, and then Australia for the Australians, and then America? I mean, he died once and for all. So if there's life on other planets, and if they have a Bible, then it tells them of salvation through Jesus Christ who came to earth. Why are we so special? If the universe is full of sinful life, why did Jesus choose earth to pay for the sins of the entire universe? And the only possible conclusion to all of these questions is that we're the only ones here. At least in my mind. It's not 100% conclusive, but it's definitely in the 90s. The entire Bible demonstrates God's careful attention to the events of the planet earth. All actions taken by God and the devil are focused on the earth. All universal history points to the planet Earth. The fact that God clued us in on angelic wars and alternate dimensions of reality proves that it is highly unlikely that there is intelligent life in the universe anywhere other than Earth. Now, if you're a logical, reasoning human being, the next question you're going to come up with is, if that's true, then why did God make the universe so huge? If we're the only ones here, all that empty space being wasted, all the galaxies and stars and planets, it's just sitting there. Well, that's limited education. The more we learn about the universe and how it works, we're discovering that all of it isn't being wasted. It is being used, believe it or not, by us. 
If the earth was a little closer to the sun or further away, we wouldn't be here. If the moon was a little closer, a little further away, we wouldn't be here. And the more we look outwardly at the universe, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if we found out years later that every inch of the universe somehow affects the way we live on earth. We know that to be true of inner space. All the atoms and the molecules, all those little electrons orbiting around the nucleus of an atom, all of that stuff that seems to be random is actually working together to make our life possible. So outer space is probably the same way. God made the universe as big as he did because he had to to fill it with all the machinery and all of the hardware to make the software work that's on Earth. But then you have left all these strange reports of UFO sightings and aliens abducting people to deliver them messages and performing all kinds of weird sexual experiments on them. What do you do with all of that? People from both sides of the aisle are doing a whole lot of dangerous assuming. You know, I think it's interesting that when people see a glowing orb of bright light flying around in the sky, they automatically assume it's a spacecraft of some kind being flown by aliens from outer space. But when those very same people see that very same glowing orb of bright light flying around in an old house with a tragic history, then they automatically assume it's a ghost or a spirit. But their conclusions are nothing more than assumptions that are based solely on their perception or understanding of reality and what they're willing to believe. The connection between life and outer space and the strange encounters that are being seen here on Earth is a connection that is assumed. And because of that assumption, people on both sides of the aisle are not approaching the topic of UFOs objectively. Groups that believe in aliens from outer space firmly believe that UFO sightings and abduction scenarios support their belief. Groups that don't believe in aliens from outer space firmly believe that all UFO sightings and abduction scenarios to be bogus, so they never investigate them. And it's a topic that's definitely worth investigating, because not only is it a subject that won't go away, the seriousness and the reliability of the subject is becoming more and more credible. For a long time, this was only talked about in terms of science fiction or fantasy. It wasn't until the 1980s that serious documentaries were beginning to be published about this topic, and even those were somewhat unreliable. During the 1990s, there was a syndicated TV documentary called Sightings, that aired periodically, and while their main focus was UFOs and alien abductions, they also covered hauntings, poltergeists, psychic phenomena, Bigfoot, and vampires. They also had a tendency, when covering UFOs, to accept just about every blurry picture anyone would send in as hardcore evidence. So while it was entertaining, and sometimes quite convincing, it really wasn't something that an objective viewer could take seriously. Later, the show was syndicated in reruns on the Sci-Fi Channel, if that tells you anything. But now, pseudo-documentaries like Sightings have been replaced by serious documentaries and exhaustive case studies surrounding UFOs. And they're aired on channels like the Discovery Channel and the History Channel. And we've gone from hearing only from toothless rednecks to now hearing from policemen, former astronauts, and high-ranking officials in the military. And it's a topic that makes it in the headlines almost every week at Fox News, CNN, MSNBC. Sean Hannity just recently did a 15-minute piece on the mystery surrounding Roswell, New Mexico, and the infamous Area 51. And he wasn't playing around. 
Now, I've noticed a stubborn phenomenon with people on both sides of the aisle. A stubborn blindness, a willful blindness. The deniers wouldn't believe in UFOs if one landed in their front yard. The believers want to believe so badly that almost everything they see is evidence. I've seen videos at YouTube, for example, of people filming bugs flying around in their backyard and slowing it down 30 times to prove that it's really an alien. I mean, it's, it's pathetic. And then you've got the hoaxers. Half of the hoaxers are actually from deniers who want to prove to the world how gullible the believers are. The other half of hoaxes are from believers who are sick and tired of waiting for the smoking gun and want to show the deniers once and for all that they're wrong. But while the hardcore believers and the hardcore deniers are fighting it out, something very real is going on. I mean, it's been real enough to spawn government intervention and the creation of think tanks and research groups. You know, one of the myths that keeps floating around from both groups is that the United States government doesn't acknowledge the existence of UFOs. And that's not true. Since 1947, they've publicly opened up several official investigations and massive projects, and they've employed several serious study groups of both professional scientists and military personnel. And we'll get into that here in a minute. But the way most conservative Christians deal with this issue is laugh at it. The more evidence there is, the louder they laugh. They feel that if they laugh at it loud enough and long enough, it'll go away. But it's not going away. Now, I can understand laughing at rednecks and toothless morons, but when you start laughing at Apollo astronauts and high-ranking officials in the military, that's a sure sign of stubborn and blind denial. While they keep laughing, the world's taking this very seriously. And they're coming up with their own explanations, while Christians have none. Because instead of investigating the evidence prayerfully and consulting the scriptures, they've been laughing. And they are not ready for what's coming. They are not ready for what's coming. So if aliens from outer space don't exist while UFOs do exist, and that's my view, then what are they? And does the Bible identify them? Are the so-called abductions real? And if they are, who's really abducting people if aliens from outer space aren't? That's why the title of this podcast is Searching the Bible for UFOs. Before we dive into the Bible for some answers, let's first examine the UFOs themselves scientifically and historically to get a better idea of what it is we're looking for. First of all, let's strip away all the junk. More than 90% of all reports are either natural phenomenon that's mistaken for UFOs or deliberate hoaxes. It's that less than 10% that we're interested in, and only that less than 10%. Just a little under three months after the infamous Roswell incident, whatever happened there, it was on September the 23rd of 1947 that the U.S. government opened its very first official investigation into the UFO phenomenon called Project Sign. On February the 11th, 1949, Project Sign was replaced by Project Grudge. And then by the end of 1949, the government revamped Project Grudge into a new undertaking called Project Blue Book. Project Blue Book was commanded by Captain Edward J. Ruppelt, and orders were given to every Air Force group in the world to report local sightings of UFOs. In 1952, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, chairman of the Northwestern University Department of Astronomy, was commissioned by the government to join Project Blue Book as chief scientific advisor. Civilian researcher Jacques Ballet worked closely with J. Allen Hynek and had open access to his entire database. Jacques Ballet is one of the few civilian researchers of UFOs who has had uncensored access to the files of Project Blue Book and is frequently sought out by the government to investigate unusual UFO encounters. 
As a matter of fact, the French UFO researcher in Steven Spielberg's film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, was based on Jacques Vallée. So these aren't late-night talk show hosts. These are serious people with high credentials, respected and employed by the U.S. government. Project Blue Book ended in 1969 after examining over 12,000 reports of UFO sightings worldwide. More than 94% of the sightings were debunked as either natural or man-made. But more than 5% of the sightings were never explained and were officially categorized as unidentified flying objects. They couldn't be disproven, they were clocked on radar, and they were seen by multiple reliable witnesses. That's more than 700 authentic UFOs in 20 years. Chief Scientific Advisor of Project Blue Book, J. Allen Hynek, said that when he first got involved back in 1952, he was particularly skeptical of people who had said that they had seen UFOs, and he was totally incredulous about those who said that they had been taken aboard one. But since those days, he said he was forced by the evidence to change his mind. During his time with this investigation, Hynek examined thousands of cases of UFOs and alleged human contact with extraterrestrial beings and amassed a library of such reports which has yet to be surpassed. And he published a book in 1972 called The UFO Experience, A Scientific Inquiry. Both J. Allen Hynek and colleague Jacques Vallée continued researching the UFO phenomenon extensively on their own after Project Blue Book was ended. Of the UFOs that fall within that less than 10% category, one of the characteristics that almost all of the reports have in common is the behavior of the UFOs themselves. They all seem to want to play peekaboo with those who witness them. It's as though they're teasing the witnesses. Now you see me, now you don't. Another strange characteristic that's common is a terrible stench that's usually accompanying these sightings when they're close. The stench is always associated with an area which UFOs have been seen at landing sites and so forth. A terrible stench that smells like death, like rotting flesh. Other evidence examined confirms that UFOs are physical objects, on the one hand. But on the other hand, maybe not. For example, UFOs have been tracked on radar, traveling at over 25,000 miles per hour within our atmosphere. But unlike a physical object, they don't burn up in the atmosphere or cause sonic booms. They've been known to make right-angle turns at over 15,000 miles per hour, something that no physical object could endure. And despite visual confirmation from multiple reliable witnesses, they don't always show up on photographic film or radar. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Sometimes, when tracked on radar, they show up at every other blip. Is it there or isn't it? They've also been seen materializing and dematerializing instantaneously. Researchers examining more than a thousand videos have determined that the objects materialize or dematerialize in one frame of video, which is one-thirtieth of a second. Some have even reported metallic craft changing shape, or morphing into multiple objects, or merging from multiple objects into one. All of this in flight and on the ground. Evidence left at landing sites show that UFOs are heavy, solid objects. Yet in flight, their startling departures, sudden stops, and right-angle turns at fast speed require them to be virtually massless. Jacques Vallée said in his 1988 book, Dimensions, that in each case, the so-called spacecraft did not disappear by moving away, even at high speed. It simply vanished on the spot, or it slowly faded away, like the Cheshire Cat, sometimes leaving behind a whitish cloud, sometimes producing the sound of an explosion. In other cases, UFOs have been reported to enter the ground, but without digging. The notion that UFOs are manufactured spacecraft, 
has been challenged by their ability to change shape while in flight or on the ground. After 20 years of examining hundreds of such accounts with Project Blue Book, J. Allen Hynek also mused about the peculiar physics of UFOs in his 1975 book, Edge of Reality, where he said that if UFOs are indeed somebody else's nuts and bolts hardware, then we must still explain how such tangible hardware can change shape before our eyes, vanish in a Cheshire Cat manner, seemingly melt away in front of us, or apparently materialize mysteriously before us without apparent detection, by persons nearby or in neighboring towns. We must wonder, too, where UFOs are hiding when not manifesting themselves to human eyes. There are also quite a few reported instances where two distinctly different UFOs hovering in a clear sky will converge and eventually merge into one object. Now, one of the factors that I haven't mentioned with all this yet, folks, are the alleged abductions. And the reason why I haven't mentioned them yet is because they fall under the category of being unreliable testimony. That doesn't mean they aren't happening, it just means that we can't know for certain whether they're happening or not. The UFO sightings I've mentioned up until now have all been dealing with multiple reliable witnesses, such as policemen, military personnel, government officials, and scientists who were all seeing the same thing at the same time. The deniers who believe none of this is really happening are only kidding themselves because throughout the years it's been real enough to spawn government intervention and the creation of think tanks and research groups funded by the government. But the abduction scenarios, they're impossible to verify because they always deal with a single individual. And when you're dealing with a single individual, you only have that individual's word for what happened. So with that in mind, let's approach this portion of our discussion with extreme caution. None of these abduction scenarios have been verified. But for reasons we're about to get into, they can't be ignored. And you'll understand why here in a minute. From the files of Blue Book and the Chronicles of Jacques Vallée in 1965, individual accounts of abductions or personal attacks from something alien were in the hundreds. As J. Allen Hynek and Jacques Vallée scoured all of them, they came to the conclusion that, just like the UFOs themselves, 90% of them were the result of delusional minds. Factors that would immediately rule out an account involved drug abuse, alcohol abuse, insanity, creative thinking, they're just outright lies. There were some pretty imaginative people out there. Some accounts claimed to be given tours of the universe and taken to Venus to meet their leaders. Others claimed to be attacked by giant octopus women from Neptune. Some cases even involved individuals who fell asleep in front of their TV sets at night while their mind incorporated the sci-fi movie that was playing on the TV into their dreams. The list goes on and on and on, and each account was just as original as the next all of them with their own individual story like nothing no one has ever heard. But among this list of the outrageous and the unbelievable, Heineck and Belay noticed a thin group of testimonies from individuals all over the planet who were telling the exact same story. Not only were their experiences identical, but their visual descriptions of the aliens themselves were identical. A similar description that was given by these several testimonies from all over the globe were as follows. The beings appeared to be gray-skinned who walked upright with spindly limbs. They were three to four and a half feet tall with large outsized foreheads, two tear-shaped black eyes, and a small almost invisible slit for a mouth. Over a hundred people from all over the world couldn't have possibly described the exact same creature by chance. 
let alone describe with that creature the exact same abduction scenario. And that was back in the 1960s, before the amount of abductions began increasing, and long before the entertainment media made these particularly described beings so popular in science fiction. It wasn't until 1977, when the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind was released, that the Greys became nationally famous. Steven Spielberg loosely modeled the aliens in his film after the Greys described in abduction reports. Then, the pseudo-documentaries of the late 80s and the early 90s started talking about the Greys, and then their fame really took off when they were immortalized in the TV show The X-Files. Today, you can even find Halloween costumes of Greys in the stores around October. But long before the Greys became icons in science fiction, they were only recorded within the records of J. Allen Hynek and Jacques Vallée during the 1950s and 60s. These people from all over the world gave the exact same description for these beings, and with them they gave identical reports of how they were abducted, what happens during the event, and so on. Now, these abductions typically happen late at night, either while the victim is driving or asleep in bed. Individual drivers will report seeing strange lights in the sky. Individuals in their bed will report a bright light outside with a humming noise. At this point, the victims black out and later discover that they've lost several hours of missing time and have new scars around their genital area. One-third of the victims spontaneously remember what happens during those missing hours a day to a few months later. The rest of the victims require hypnotic regression. But the recovered memories usually begin with their own personal discovery of being paralyzed. While unable to move, they then realize they're being watched by hairless, three to five foot tall, gray-skinned entities. They then usually report feeling the sensation of floating away from their bed or their car. They either report being floated through the window or sometimes through the wall or through the roof to an awaiting craft of some kind. Once inside, the victims report being in a white room that's reminiscent of an operating room-like environment. Then these gray-skinned entities perform head-to-toe examinations while paying special close attention to the genital area. Women report being probed with long metallic devices. Men report procedures for the retrieval of sperm. Both male and female victims report the removal of tissue samples and the insertion of metallic foreign objects deep into the nasal passageways, or lower, around the reproductive areas. Through telepathic mind-to-mind communication, the victims are then told by the gray-skinned entities that the procedures are being performed so that their seed would be used for the production of hybrid offspring. They are then told about the necessity of this new hybrid race to bridge the gap between the human race and theirs, and this bridging of the gap is necessary for our survival as a species. Then the victims are given horrific scenarios about impending cataclysmic events and the destruction of the earth due to our own environmental degradation, and that our only hope to survive is for the unification of all humanity into a system of global religion and global government, with the assistance of these gray-skinned entities to guide us, who claim to be our true creators. Now, while all of these abduction reports cannot possibly be verified, They can't be ignored either for the following five reasons. Number one, there is a high degree of consistency of details between people from all over the world who report the account with the emotions that are appropriate to these experiences. 50,000 people from all over the planet can't be lying. 
Because if they are, they're telling the exact same lie. Number two, there are no psychological or emotional factors such as psychiatric illness that could account for what's being reported. Number three, there are visible physical changes such as lesions, cuts, and post-surgical scars which don't follow any psychodynamic pattern. Number four, many times there are UFOs witnessed independently by others while the abduction scenarios are taking place, which the abductee may or may not see. And number five, the most disturbing factor, is the report of abduction in children as young as two years of age. So what does all this mean? We have more than 50 years of professional scientists, researchers, and government officials closely studying this and monitoring all of this. For more than 50 years, we've had unidentified flying objects that baffle the laws of physics as we know them. They appear to be solid objects that leave tangible evidences behind of them being solid, and yet they behave like something supernatural. They move at speeds impossible to reach without making noise or burning up in the atmosphere. They fade in and out like a Hollywood special effect. And while abductions can't be proven, they can't be disproven either because of the consistency of reports for more than six decades. And just like the UFOs themselves, these abduction reports also border between what's natural and supernatural. The aliens themselves speak directly to the mind without using audible words. They take these individuals against their will, levitating them through walls. What's going on? How long has this been going on? How far back do these reports go? How many of you have heard the Native Americans talk about the star people? There are some extremely detailed oral traditions that have been passed down that might surprise you. According to the oral history of the Native Americans, they believe that they owe their origins to what they call the star people. The star people, when you get through the translations, are a group of extraterrestrial entities of the star nations. They tell legends of flying disks and luminous cloud ships. And these legends and beliefs are held in the tribal nations of both hemispheres. The tribal legends of the Native Americans, the Incas, the Aztecs, and the Mayas of Central and South America all speak of human contact with star people from the star cluster that we call the Pleiades. The pre-Inca people believed the universe was inhabited by gods who arrived on Earth from the Pleiades and constructed the city walls in one night by mysterious men who were giants from Taurus, the constellation of the Pleiades. What makes this legend fascinating is that the city walls were constructed from blocks that weighed 60 tons, which were reinforced by metal clamps. They also believe that the star people descended from the clouds to have sexual intercourse with Incan women, most of the time uninvited. One of the attributes of the star people and their offspring was that they had six fingers, which is why the Native Americans would always greet strangers from a distance with the traditional raising of the hand and saying how. You know, are you one of us or are you one of them? Look at the hand. The ancient historians of Rome recorded UFOs in their skies during the first century B.C. and called them phantom ships. Rome historians of the third and fourth centuries B.C. mentioned visits from a fiery shield that swept across the sky. In the ancient Greek and Roman mythology, you'll hear of the gods taking human wives who then gave birth to the Titans, who were giants who helped build the monuments of Greece. Zeus was a god that took a human wife who then gave birth to Hercules. Ancient Egypt is full of stories and legends of flying gods that came down to earth to instruct and guide the ancient Egyptians. Based upon their own hieroglyphics and legends, they flew on celestial disks, or flying boats. 
In Egyptian mythology, Ra was known as the sun god and was lord of the universe and flew in a celestial boat. Horus was the god of the sky and flew on the winged disks of Ra, which, quote, shined with many colors, unquote. In a papyrus record of the annals of Pharaoh Tutmos III of 1600 B.C., it mentions circles of fire in the sky, circles that were as bright as the sun and dominated the skies in great number. Accompanying these circles of fire was a terrible stench. Sound familiar? Also among the ancient Egyptian legends is the belief from various records that supernatural giants who were descendants of the gods built the Great Pyramid. Now, all the pyramids in Egypt, folks, were built by the Egyptians themselves as tombs for the pharaohs, but the Great Pyramid was inherited by the Egyptians. Some dating estimates it was built earlier than 3000 B.C. Others even dated back to 10,000 B.C. It weighs almost 6 million tons, and its base covers 13.6 acres. It was built using more than 2 million limestone blocks, each with an average weight of 2.5 tons. Between each stone is a gap of only .02 inches allowed for cement. Some of the blocks weigh almost a hundred tons, and yet they're so perfectly placed that a single piece of paper can't be slipped in between them. These specifications exceed the tolerance level allowed for the tiles of the space shuttle. The Great Pyramid is aligned to True North better than the Paris Observatory. Its four sides are aligned to the four points of the compass. The edges of the Great Pyramid are straight to less than half an inch along its perimeter. And even though it weighs millions of tons, the whole thing has settled less than an inch into the ground in thousands of years. To this day, no one has found any records describing how, when, or why the Great Pyramid was built. But the ancient Egyptians say in their records that it was constructed by supernatural giants who were sent and guided by the flying gods who flew on celestial disks and flying boats. There are granite carvings and cave paintings in China, France, and Spain that show drawings of oval and disc-shaped objects hovering in the sky. In the mountain cave of China's Hunan province, there are figures standing on some of these discs who have large, round, white heads, no hair, two large, black, round eyes, a thin line for a nose, and no mouth. They look exactly like today's descriptions of the alien greys, Figures that resemble the greys have also been discovered on ancient rock paintings in the central Kimberley district of Australia. According to the legends from the tribes of that area, they are the quote-unquote mythical mouthless gods of creation. Between 3000 B.C. and 2000 B.C., thousands of clay tablets and cylinders from ancient Sumer and Mesopotamia talk of gods which came down to earth from the heavens and interacted with humanity. They speak of them descending from the stars and fertilizing their ancestors. The most ancient writings that we still have in possession today, the original writings, comes from the ancient Hindus. Some of the earliest portions of this text was written around 3000 B.C., and in those ancient texts, you'll find the Hindus describing aerial cars that were bright, radiant, colorful, and metallic. Other portions describe them as cloud-borne chariots that sailed upon the cloudless sky. And these weren't occasional, isolated events, according to the text, but were frequent and boldly before all to see. And there was also much interaction with these beings. And the other cultures of the same time period, as well as beforehand, talk of intrusions from these beings who abducted human females, who then in turn gave birth to unnatural offspring. Not only are these reports the oldest reports known to exist, but no other time period in history are these strange intrusions talked about with such frequency.
Apparently, this kind of thing's been going on all throughout mankind's history, but nowhere near as often or as bold as in this particular time period. Now, what makes this special for us and our discussion is that most scholars believe the ancient Hindu texts to have been written during the same time period which the Bible calls the days of Noah. That's roughly around 3000 B.C. And the biblical account of the days of Noah begins in Genesis chapter 6. So let's get over there and see if it has anything to say about this. You see, whether you're talking about the ancient explanations for these intrusions or the modern day explanations for these intrusions, they're all being described and explained from a worldly and secular perspective. In modern times, we call them aliens and UFOs. The Native Americans called them star people. In ancient times, they called them gods. What does the Bible call them? And what is its explanation for what's happening? So let's get over to Genesis chapter 6 and see what's going on. We'll start off in the old King James and then work our way up through other translations, starting off in verse 1. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now, after reading those two verses, if you're like me, you probably wouldn't think much about that until you hear God's reaction in verse 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. So whatever it is going on in those first two verses, God's against it. So much so that he's given mankind a hundred and twenty years to straighten up. What for? There's nothing in those first two verses about wickedness or misbehavior. That comes later, but God's already upset here, to the point of starting a countdown. You've got 120 years to stop this, or else. So let's go back up and read those two verses again slowly. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. When you read these two verses in other translations, like the Amplified, the New American Standard, or even the NIV, there's very little difference. The New American Standard and NIV replaces the word fair with the word beautiful, because not too many people use the word fair today when describing a woman's attractiveness. Wow, she's fair. So, I mean, it doesn't translate well today. So, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and took them wives of all they desired and chose. What does it mean when it uses the phrase, sons of God? Who are the sons of God? If you're like me, if you read this chapter in the context of the whole book of Genesis, you just assume that the sons of God is just a neat little title for early humans. Because this is Genesis chapter 6, after all. We've just gone through the creation scenario in the first family, Adam and Eve and their kids, Cain and Abel. And then there's this large time gap between that family and Noah's. A gap that's only filled in Genesis chapter 5, with a family tree connecting the two eras. And when you read it, thinking that the sons of God is just a label for early man, you get the impression it's just saying that the more men multiplied on the planet, the more attractive women there were, so more and more people got married. But why would God have a problem with that? Especially after that's exactly what God told them to do earlier. Remember? Be fruitful and multiply. So something else is going on here. Let's try these two verses in the Living Bible and see how it paraphrases it. King James, the Amplified, and the New American Standard are word-for-word -word translations. The Living Bible, though, being a paraphrase of the original Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, sometimes misses the point because it's a paraphrase. 
But it's still a valuable resource to add to your study library because every now and then, its paraphrase will pull something out from the original language that's more accurate in its definition. While not being as accurate to the original words themselves, but more accurate by its definition. That's why it's always important, folks, to have all of these translations. Unless you speak fluent Hebrew and Greek, you're always going to be impaired with just one English translation. But anyway, let's see how the Living Bible treats these two verses. Now, a population explosion took place upon the earth. It was at this time that beings from the spirit world looked upon the beautiful earth women and took any they desired to be their wives. What? Why does the Living Bible paraphrase sons of God as beings from the spirit world? Well, it turns out that the phrase used all throughout the Bible, son of God or sons of God, it's a label that's always given to living beings who are a direct creation of God himself. Adam was called a son of God because he had no parents, no ancestors. God made him directly. The rest of us throughout the Bible are given the label sons of man because we're all descendants of Adam. But in the New Testament, when the Son of Man accepts Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, they are reborn, a spiritual rebirth, and then given the label sons and daughters of God because they're now a direct creation of God himself. Jesus Christ was called the Son of God because of the virgin birth. Jesus, the human, who was born in Bethlehem, is a direct creation of God. Angels are direct creations of God, so they're given the label sons of God. That's one of the reasons why some religious groups think that Jesus Christ was just an angel. They notice that angels throughout the Old Testament are given the label sons of God. So when Jesus Christ is also given that label, they jump to the conclusion that Jesus was an angel. But sons of God doesn't mean angel. Christians are given the label sons and daughters of God too. Does that mean we're angels? No, it just means we're a direct creation of God. Now, in the Old Testament, Jesus in human form doesn't exist yet. He's still with the Father at this point, and the church doesn't exist yet either. So the only ones in the Old Testament that the label Son of God applies to is Adam and the angels. The Hebrew term translated Sons of God is Benai Ha Elohim, a term that is consistently used in the Old Testament for angels. When the Hebrew Torah was translated into Greek in the 3rd century before Christ, this expression was translated literally as angels. That's why the Living Bible's paraphrase translated it as beings from the spirit world. It's not completely accurate, but there's a lot more to get the point across to anyone who didn't catch it when reading it in the King James. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God, the Benai Ha Elohim, the angels, saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now, don't let that phrase, took them wives, fool you into thinking that they dated each other, had a wedding ceremony, and got married. The NIV kind of translates it that way, but it's not accurate. You've got to understand the language of this time. In the ancient culture, sexual relations is something that only husbands and wives did. If you were a man, you were either a virgin or a husband. If you were a woman, you were either a virgin or a wife. If you go back to the first verse of chapter 4 in Genesis, it reads, quote, Adam knew Eve as his wife and she became pregnant, unquote. That's the polite and appropriate language of the time saying that Adam and Eve had sexual intercourse, an act that only husbands and wives did. 
So when you get to chapter 6, verse 2, and it says that these fallen angels took wives of all they desired, it's saying they took them for sexual intercourse. But notice the difference in the language between what Adam and Eve did and what's going on here. It said Adam knew Eve as his wife. Here it says the sons of God took wives of all they desired. They didn't know them as wives like Adam did with Eve. They took them wives. They took them. Another word for that that might be more familiar to our ears in this discussion could be abducted. Now when you get to verse 3 and find God's reaction to this, it kind of raises an even bigger question. It says, quote, The Lord said, My spirit shall not forever dwell and strive with man, for he also is flesh, but his days shall yet be. 120 years. Now, my first reaction to this after finding out what sons of God really means is, why is God upset with man? It's clearly the fault of the fallen angels. They're the ones that need to be dealt with. Well, we find out later in the New Testament that he did deal with those fallen angels, but that still doesn't tell us why the flood happened. So let's keep reading, starting in verse 4. It says, quote, There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God lived with the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The label, daughters of men, in the original Hebrew, is Benoth Adam, which when literally translated into English would be daughters of Adam. The name Adam means man because he was the first man. So whenever you read son of man or daughter of man, that just means human. In this context, it's referring to the natural female descendants of mankind. There's no particular genealogical strain here. It just means human females. The fallen angels, translated sons of God, mated with the human females, translated daughters of men. The term translated giants is from the Hebrew word Nephilim, and it literally means the fallen ones. In the Greek Septuagint translation, the term used was gigantes, which means earthborn. So let's put all of this together with what we know now. It says, When men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives of all they desired and chose. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God lived with the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So obviously, the result of fallen angels having intercourse with human women resulted in unnatural offspring. And it's this offspring, not human beings, but the offspring that's becoming a problem. They were the ones who were the target of God's wrath. They were the reason for the flood, which we'll find out when we keep reading. Now, the way the first portions of Genesis is written, it doesn't spend too much time getting into details. People often think of Genesis as the book of creation, but it really isn't. Genesis is 50 chapters long, and the creation only takes up the first one. What was life like for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? Well, we don't know. It only takes up a chapter and a half. The main focus of the book of Genesis is actually the beginnings of the nation of Israel. It isn't until you get to Abraham in chapter 12 that the speed of the narrative finally starts to slow down and give you more detail. Up until then, it's all just a matter of fact. You know, this happened, that happened, then this happened. Then he was the father of this guy, and then he did this, and then he did that. I mean, it's real quick. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot in those first 11 chapters, but it doesn't answer questions such as what something looked like or how something felt. So when you find in Genesis chapter 6 that fallen angels were taking human women to have sexual intercourse with them, you want to ask questions like, how do spiritual beings such as fallen angels 
have sexual intercourse with physical beings such as human women. How did this happen? I thought the Bible said that angels couldn't procreate. Why were they doing it? How did they pull it off? And What did it look like? Stuff like that. Fortunately for us, we have the entire Bible to get those answers, and we're going to try to answer all those questions here in a minute. But in the context of what's going on here in Genesis chapter 6, it only gives you the facts. Fallen angels took human women, and they had unnatural offspring, period. But the secular world of Noah's time also recorded these events in the oldest parts of the Hindu texts, which we still have today, where it describes God flying in aerial cars that were bright, radiant, colorful, and metallic. If those texts are accurately reporting what the ancient secular world thought was going on, it would certainly fit not only today's abduction reports, but also the biblical description of what Satan's angels are capable of. Today's so-called aliens fly around in aerial cars that are bright, radiant, colorful, and metallic. They abduct women for the purposes of creating a hybrid race for our benefit, according to them. They claim to be our creators, and they're here to help us. If this is what they were doing and saying in Noah's day, the ancients would believe them to be gods. That lie would be easy to believe. But since Genesis chapter 6 tells us they're really fallen angels, we know it's a lie because that lie fits their typical M.O. described in 2 Corinthians 11.14, where it says Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So it's not surprising that his servants masquerade as ministers of righteousness. But let's not get ahead of ourselves too quickly. Let's go back and try to answer some of these tough questions. Before we get into why these strange events caused God to bring a flood on the earth, let's make sure we know what we're talking about here. The New Testament confirms that the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 were fallen angels. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 says, quote, God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, unquote. It's confirmed again later in Jude 6, where it says, quote, The angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, God has reserved in everlasting chains, under darkness, unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner gave themselves over to fornication and went after strange flesh, unquote. Now, the original Greek word that was translated habitation refers to the heavenly bodies that these fallen angels had disrobed themselves of. That term only appears twice in the New Testament, and each time it's used, it's referring to the body as a dwelling place for the spirit. But that brings up the question, what did these fallen angels do with themselves after disrobing their uncorruptible body? You know, we don't really know much about the physical nature of angels or their capabilities. All throughout the Bible, though, it shows that they don't have a problem materializing in some physical form within our space-time. They talked as humans, they ate meals, they took people by the hand, and were capable of direct combat. All throughout the Bible, they always seem to appear as men, as human beings. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, gives you the impression that many of us may have even encountered angels without knowing it. Now, as for what they're capable of, you all know the story of the firstborn who were killed in Egypt in one night. One angel did that. Another angel in one night killed 185,000 Syrians. One angel. Now, some folks who just can't accept this business of fallen angels creating unnatural offspring with human women will tell me that only God can create life. Satan doesn't have that kind of power. He can't create life. Well, if you'll remember 
the contest between Moses and Pharaoh, you'll remember that Moses put his staff on the ground before Pharaoh and it turned into a serpent, which is okay because we know God did that. But Pharaoh wasn't impressed because he had priests who could do the same thing. How? By demonic power. Fallen angels. Now, to make you feel better, I could tell you that the serpents that Pharaoh's priests made weren't true life forms, but a satanic form of artificial life. I could tell you that to make you feel better, but I don't know if that's true or not. It could be, and it probably is. I think that's an excellent theory, but I don't know. All I know for sure is what this Bible is telling me sitting right here in front of me. Genesis chapter 6, 1 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 2, and Jude 6 all make it very clear that some angels kept not their first estate. They fell. They disrobed themselves of their incorruptible bodies and went after human flesh and created unnatural offspring. That's what it's saying. You don't have to believe it, but that's what it's saying. Now, the biggest contradiction to the Genesis 6 account, according to those who like to argue with me about this topic, is Luke chapter 20, verses 35 to 36, where Jesus is talking about those who enter heaven, and he said that, quote, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection, unquote. But that statement of Jesus' doesn't say anything about fallen angels. He's talking about the angels in heaven. God doesn't let fallen angels run around in heaven. And as for procreation is concerned, in heaven there's no need for it. And there's apparently no desire for it because they don't do it. Jesus didn't say that they can't do it. He just said they don't. But angels can fall. And at one time, a third of them did. And once an angel falls, they can aspire to any form of degeneracy that they want to. What limits their technologies? Now, just so you'll know, there are other contrived interpretations of Genesis chapter 6 that have been floating around for centuries in order to avoid this spooky doctrine. But that's all they are, is contrived. They don't fit the text itself, they don't fit with the rest of the Bible, and the motive for those alternate interpretations is always to avoid or cover up what's really there. So now that we've established that the sons of God are indeed fallen angels in Genesis chapter 6, Let's get back to Genesis chapter 6 to find out what God had against the offspring and why he flooded the earth to wipe them out. Starting in verse 4, there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God lived with the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination, every intention, every thought of his heart was only evil continually. See, folks, the meanest, nastiest human being on the planet can't possibly be evil continually. Even Hitler, who was obviously wicked and evil, had moments where his heart may have been thinking about something good towards his own family. I'm not saying Hitler had a good side to him. I'm just saying that the ability to be continually evil, the ability to have every single thought, every intention, to have an evil heart and evil mind on a constant, continual basis, is an ability that could only be satanic. These Nephilim, these offspring of the fallen angels, weren't human. They may have had some kind of human form, but they did not have a human soul. They were not human. But they did have human flesh, because they were born of human women, 
human women who were abducted by fallen angels who took on some kind of physical form in order to have sexual intercourse with them. And it's this satanic offspring which was taking over the world because according to collective history, these strange intrusions have never happened as often as they did during this time period. So man's bloodline had been severely tainted with the bloodline of the Nephilim. Satan was trying to wipe out the human race by replacing it with his own. Now you might ask, why would he do this? All you have to do is go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God announced to Satan the very first prophecy in the Bible of the coming Messiah. It was at that moment that Satan learned of the coming Messiah, who would be a kinsman redeemer, a human. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God said, quote, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and it shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In that one little statement, you have three prophecies of the coming Messiah. God called him the seed of the woman, which is contradictory because women don't have seed. It's a prophecy of the virgin birth. He said, it shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The bruising of the Messiah's heel is a prophecy of the cross. The bruising of Satan's head is a prophecy which has yet to be fulfilled, Satan's ultimate destruction. But in the Garden of Eden, Satan learned of God's plan to redeem mankind through a human Messiah. So, Satan and his angels went to work. They couldn't wipe out the human race, but they attempted to replace them through inbreeding. And when God starts talking about wiping out everyone with a flood, you'll notice he keeps using the phrase, wipe out all flesh, destroy all flesh. See, these Nephilim, these giants, were demonic beings, but they were wearing human flesh. But by the time you get to Genesis 6, verse 8, it says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because in verse 9, it says that Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. It's talking about his bloodline. Apparently, by the time God addressed Noah and told him about the coming flood and gave him instructions on the building of the ark and all that, Noah and his family were the only true human beings left on the planet. Everyone else alive were Nephilim. You know, it's really unfortunate that the story of Noah and the flood has been taught the way it has been. When they usually teach this story to kids, or even adults for that matter, they start at verse 5, where it starts talking about God seeing all the wickedness on the earth. But Noah was a good guy. He behaved himself. They skip verses 1 to 4, which are really the only verses in this whole story that make any sense out of it. The idea that God would wipe out everyone, except for Noah, because of wickedness and wicked behavior alone doesn't make any sense. Because the flood didn't change anything in that sense. There's wickedness today. According to the rest of the Bible, God's all-seeing and all-knowing. He's also loving and forgiving. But this whole story of Noah and the flood, as we're usually taught, it contradicts all that. But, if God wiped out everyone but Noah to save the human race from extinction, that puts a whole different light on things. If you go back to verse 4, where it says there were giants, or Nephilim in the earth in those days, it says, quote, and also after that, unquote. So the flood didn't stop these intrusions. It just stopped the Nephilim of that time period from completely replacing the human race. But once you get to the story of Abraham, God reveals more information about the coming Messiah. Satan finds out that he will be of the nation of Israel. So then Satan focuses all of his attacks on them. Then after the Exodus scenario from Egypt, Satan learns that they're supposed to settle in the land of Canaan. So he focuses his intrusions there. When Israel gets to its borders, Moses sends in a bunch of scouts to check it out, and the scouts come back with a scary report. They say, we can't go in there. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. You know, it's always upset me when I hear Christians talk about God as though his attitude has changed throughout the years. 
I've heard Christians say things like the God of the Old Testament wasn't as forgiving as the God of the New Testament. They bring up scenarios from the book of Joshua and other places where God orders the Jews to go conquer some territory and wipe out every man, woman, and child. If Christians had done their homework in Genesis chapter 6, they would have known that those men, women, and children weren't human. They were Nephilim. They were the same kind of beings that God wiped out in the flood whose every imagination, every intention, every thought was only evil continually. When Satan learned about God's plans for Israel, he'd set up a minefield of Nephilim there. You don't negotiate with demonic monsters. There's no redemption for demonic monsters who have no desire to be redeemed. You wipe them out. I'm sure you've all heard the story of David and Goliath. Satan learned that the coming Messiah would be a descendant of David. So almost like something out of the Terminator, Satan sends Goliath, a giant, a Philistine Nephilim, to kill David as a kid. The whole Old Testament is full of scenarios, folks, of Satan doing everything he can to stop Jesus from coming. His last greatest effort was when King Herod ordered the slaughter of all the Jewish babies on the night Jesus was born. So now let's bring this discussion back to the present day. How do we know that modern UFOs and the alien abductions have anything to do with the Bible's fallen angels and their intrusions? Well, knowing what we now know about the days of Noah, it might interest you to know that Jesus made a spooky statement in Luke 17 and Matthew 24 about his second coming. He said that those days would be like the days of Noah. UFO researchers J. Allen Hynek and Jacques Vallée have written extensively about the supernatural behavior of modern UFOs and the parallels between today's abductions and the demonic legends of the Middle Ages. Now, to the best of my knowledge, J. Allen Hynek and Jacques Vallée are not religious people. So they really don't know what to do with that information, but they can't ignore it. When Jacques Vallée served as the real-life model for his character equivalent in Steven Spielberg's film Close Encounters of the Third Kind, he tried to point out to Spielberg that the aliens he was building his movie around were in reality very deceitful, that they were only pretending to be interplanetary beings, while in reality were interdimensional. Spielberg had done a lot of research for the film and told Vallée that he was right, but that this was Hollywood. And he wanted to give the people something that was closer to what they expected. So this is a top UFO researcher, folks, who was employed by the U.S. government, who's not religious, but believes that these intrusions are paraphysical or interdimensional. He also believes that the aliens are lying about who and what they are. He also believes they have ulterior motives, although he doesn't know what those motives are. Since we know that these interdimensional beings pretending to be aliens are really fallen angels, maybe we can figure out what their motives are. We know what they were before Christ's first visit. What about now? Well, Satan has always seen God's consistent honesty as a weakness, an Achilles heel. That's why he pays close attention to every prophetic hint that God has ever revealed throughout history. As soon as God said that the Messiah would be a man, he began trying to wipe out mankind. Then, when God said the Messiah would be a Jew, he started focusing his attacks on the Jews. When God said the Messiah would be a descendant of David, he focused his attacks on the lineage of David. And then finally, when he learned that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, he attacked the newborns of Bethlehem. But finally, Jesus did come and accomplished his ultimate task on the cross. So, Satan had to change his focus of attacks to prevent Jesus' second coming. God had revealed that the Messiah would return to reclaim the earth when the Antichrist sat down in the middle room of the Jerusalem temple and declared himself to be God. So Satan went to work on Israel again. If there's no Israel and no temple in Jerusalem, then that prophecy can't come true. 
So Jerusalem fell in 70 A.D., and the temple was destroyed. As long as there was no Israel, no temple, Satan could breathe easy. And he did breathe easy for close to 2,000 years. But he remembered another prophecy that God laid out in the book of Daniel. It was a mathematical prophecy that foretold the exact date that Israel would rise again. I don't want to go into the mechanics of that here. You can find it at various places online. But the point is, Satan knew when it was. On May 14th of 1948, Israel would officially be reborn. Satan knew it was coming. So, in 1933, Hitler came to power. And between 1939 and 1945, over 6 million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. But Hitler lost the war in 1945, and negotiations for a reborn Israel went underway. And it was in this same year that the modern era of UFOs began. It started with a few sightings and abductions here and there, mostly remote and singled out among unreliable witnesses. But then it increased in frequency and boldness throughout the years. Why? What's Satan up to? What prophecies surrounding Jesus' second coming is Satan now trying to thwart? To find out, let's do a real speedy run-through of what's prophesied to happen. At some point in the future, a world leader will rise into the public sphere that will have all of the answers we need to fix every problem we've ever had. This coming world leader is first prophesied in Genesis. He's called the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent. Which means he will be a Nephilim. The Bible's given him many other titles. The one we're probably most familiar with is the Antichrist. This coming world leader will convince the entire world population to follow him into a one-world government as well as a one-world religion. He will have great power and wondrous, deceitful signs to back him up. His ability to deceive will be impossible to resist. The Bible says his deception will be so potent that if it were possible, he would even deceive the very elect. The elect is a biblical title for the church, the Christians, the saints, the saved. The Bible says if it were possible, he would even deceive the elect. The reason why it won't be possible, we'll get into in a minute. But apparently, his deception is skilled enough to even deceive the most faithful Christians. Every religion on the planet will cast aside their beliefs to follow this guy. Every political system will cast aside their positions to follow this guy. Now, can you imagine every race, religion, and political party coming together as one to follow this guy? The Bible says it'll happen. He will claim to be our true creator. And for some reason, the people of earth will believe him. This will go on for three and a half years. But then, God will begin to send plagues upon the earth. Very serious plagues, such as falling asteroids and all other kinds of mayhem. But after each plague, the people of earth will still stand behind the Antichrist. So God will continue to send even more plagues. And this will go on for another three and a half years. Finally, the Antichrist will motivate the people of earth to gather themselves together to wage a final battle against God. This battle is commonly known as the Battle of Armageddon. It's a battle that won't last long. As the people of earth gather themselves together to fight God, the Antichrist will sit down in the Holy of Holies, the middle room of the temple in Jerusalem, and claim to be the God of the universe. At that point in time, Jesus will immediately return to the earth with the saints and put this arrogant upstart in his place, and imprison Satan in chains. And every eye shall see, every ear shall hear, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Now that's just a speedy run-through of the end-time scenario without getting into the details, but that's the gist of it. Nobody knows when these events will take place, 
But once things get started, you can set your watch by them. It's all laid out in the Bible, every last detail of that seven-year period. So Jesus' second coming is well scheduled. Now, there's another prophecy that I haven't mentioned that most people mix up with the return of Jesus Christ. It's commonly known as the rapture of the church. The word rapture doesn't appear anywhere in the English Bible. It's from the Latin translation of the Bible, in which the Latin word rapturo was taken from the Greek words, the Second Thessalonians, which means to be caught up or snatched up. Second Thessalonians and several other places has all the details of this event. It's a moment in time when all of the human beings who have been adopted into the family of God, the church, the saved, the saints, the Christians, they are literally beamed out of here, if I can use that phrase. It says it happens in the twinkling of an eye. Christian folklore throughout the years has always drawn cartoons of this event as Christians floating in the sky. But you really can't float in the twinkling of an eye. One millisecond you're here, the next millisecond you're with Jesus Christ and all the Christians who have died in Christ beforehand. A lot of people call that the second coming, but it really isn't. If you scour the Bible for all references to the second coming, you'll find that it's scheduled to happen at the end of that seven-year period that's extensively detailed. And when it happens, every eye shall see, every ear shall hear, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. But the rapture isn't scheduled. Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour of that event. And it's an event that will come like a thief in the night. How can it happen like a thief in the night if every eye shall see and every tongue shall confess? Well, it can't. It's not the same event. When Jesus returns down to earth, he comes with the saints. The saints are already with him when he returns and comes down to the earth. The rapture isn't Jesus coming down to earth. It's Jesus gathering the church up to him. And the purpose of the rapture is to spare God's elect from God's wrath, just as Noah and his family were spared, just as Lot was spared before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Folks, the whole purpose of the cross was to save man from God's judgment. The plagues that will be sent to the earth during the last three and a half years of the Antichrist's rule are works of God's judgment and wrath, something that the cross spares people from. Those who have accepted the work of the cross are spared from God's judgment. That's what the whole Bible is about. God may allow his children at times to suffer for various reasons. Sometimes it's about building maturity. Sometimes it's discipline. But at no time in biblical history does God allow his children to take part in the pouring out of his wrath. Christians will never see God's wrath. Never. That's why when the Bible talks about the ability of the Antichrist to deceive, it says if it were possible, he would deceive the very elect. The reason why it's not possible is because the elect won't be on the earth. But if they were, they'd be deceived along with everyone else. Now, the rapture of the church can happen at any given moment. It's not scheduled. Jesus clearly said that no man knows the day or the hour of that event. And his warning is to always be ready, because it could happen at any given moment. A lot of people assume it happens right before the appearing of the Antichrist. And it might, but nobody knows. All we do know is that God's purpose in that event is to evacuate his children from the earth before he pours out his wrath on it. He could do that a day before the Antichrist comes. He could do it a hundred years beforehand. He could do it right now. But there are no prophecies that must be fulfilled in order for God to send Jesus to gather up his children. But since we know it can't happen after the Antichrist is here, people just assume it's probably right before his appearing. So what is Satan doing with all of this information? Well, if you were to peruse the Internet 
for information about UFOs and aliens, you wouldn't believe the size of the following this subject has. There are a few sites here and there with research, but a majority of what's out there are catalogs of people channeling aliens and writing everything down on blogs. They've been doing this for years, first in periodic journals and then on the Internet. People have been using telepathy, channeling, out-of-body experiences to talk to various aliens from all over the universe for decades. Of course, Bible scholars will tell you that channeling, out-of-body experiences, and stuff like that are like bright neon welcome signs to demonic activity. It always has been. You know, I find it interesting that these groups who believe they're communicating with aliens don't stop to consider that the phone lines that they're using goes into the same switchboard that links to hell. Imagine Satan setting up a switchboard of millions of channels that all lead to the same phone line with the same person answering every single time, but changing his name and using different voices. It's incredible. I mean, if they had a super radio, it'd be different, but they're using supernatural means to talk to these aliens. It's amazing. And I could bore you to tears with countless stories from all these various groups who are dead serious. I'm sure a lot of them are just kooks, but after reading what a lot of these people are hearing from these quote-unquote aliens, I really believe they're talking to fallen angels. Because here's a summary of what these aliens are telling them. The catastrophic plagues of weather phenomena that we're witnessing on our planet are the result of our own environmental carelessness. Our wars are only worsening the aura of Earth's vibration, and our economy doesn't help either. And because of our limited imaginations, we will not heed to the voices of the abductees who have spoken to aliens in the past about these problems. Therefore, one day soon, very soon, aliens will finally make themselves known to our planet in a very dramatic way. So as to do away with all the cover-ups and theories, they've been gathering many plans to introduce themselves to the people of Earth in a grand way so as to finally prove to the unbelievers that life in outer space is indeed real and they are here. They will communicate with our world governments and plead for our sake to join them in a new world political and religious system. A great and wonderful man who is half human and half alien will bridge the gap between humans and the aliens and they will lead us into our salvation. Unfortunately, there are a small group of people all over the earth who are unable to let go of their religious beliefs, who will have to be removed from the earth and relocated to another planet to be re-educated. As for the rest of us who are left behind, we have earned the right and shown our own worthiness to be ready to move into the next step of human evolution. But as for the religious, who don't realize that their Bible is told from the perspective of an evil alien who has always interfered with the progress of mankind's development. Whenever humanity was united, he got in the way and caused division among the people of Earth. Now, folks, <laughs> it was when I first heard that lie that I realized how all of it would go down. The Nephilim Antichrist will pose as a half-human, half-alien inbreed to bridge the gap between humans and the aliens, who are actually fallen angels. His deceitful signs and wonders will be camouflaged as advanced technology. When UFOs appear on the earth after the rapture, people will assume that aliens are responsible, and that assumption will be confirmed when the alien fallen angels take credit for it. And when God starts to send his wrath upon the earth, the Antichrist will give the most heroic and memorable speech ever given by any leader. He'll talk of unity and fighting for earth independence, as he makes God out to be an enemy alien. 
No wonder the people of earth will be fooled into thinking they stand a chance against him. Now, folks, this scenario is not just one of many. It is a summary of what just about all of the UFO cults and UFO followers are saying is going to happen. They're being led around by Satan and his angels, and of all of the abduction reports that are pouring in almost every day now, this message is being confirmed over and over and over again. And Christians are not ready to battle this theology because they have ignored it. I suppose they've been able to ignore it because the UFO movement, for the most part, has always been confined to kooks. But those days are numbered. Serious people are searching for something higher than themselves, and they're turning to these UFO cults who are backed up by satanic power. Now, after listening to this entire podcast, you might wonder, Josh, why are you talking about this now? Well, folks, I believe that as time continues to march onward, that the dividing line between science, politics, and religion will become harder and harder to distinguish. And one of the worst attitudes that American Christians have always had is that nothing will happen before the rapture. But there's nothing in the Bible that says that. The rapture will happen before God sends his wrath and judgment upon the earth, yes, but that doesn't mean things won't get weird before then. The UFO cults are being told by fallen angels through telepathy and channeling to expect a grand display that will completely change the way mankind views reality. They are adamantly waiting for a giant UFO sighting to cover the United States, forcing everyone to accept the reality of aliens. From a biblical standpoint, what's to stop that from happening? If and when it does happen, and you find yourself in awe of the beauty and magnificence of this brightly lit extraterrestrial craft, and you find your ears tingling with words of unity, love, and hope, while also hearing that the Bible must be cast aside. Keep in mind 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, where it says that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light, and that his servants masquerade as ministers of righteousness. And one more thing. If there should be a massive alien abduction from the planet Earth, and I'm one of those who've been removed... Trust me when I tell you, it wasn't the aliens who removed me. It was my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 